This evening we're speaking with Aaliyah Kuthan. She's a gardener turned homesteader and a sustainability educator and has had a range of life experiences that I think you'll find interesting and inspiring in various ways. I guess we should start with if you want to start with your kind of upbringing and where you where you kind of got your orientation to be concerned about, you know, things to do with broader systems, the earth and all that and social injustice and that sort of thing. So, why don't you go ahead and just start wherever you want to with kind of how you came into your perspective that you're now, you know, acting on. Okay. Um Hi. First of all, <laughs> it's good to be here. Uh, I'm from Indiana. I'm a Hoosier, born and bred. I've lived in other places in my life. Uh, but I was born in Indianapolis, and at a very early age, as a baby, I, I moved to Clay County and lived with my grandparents and my mother on my grandpa's old uh, homestead. And he had, at one point, he had a cow, and they had... Uh, a horse and they had gardens and the neighbor next door had an extensive garden and I grew up around that. Uh, as a child I used to climb a, an overgrown honeysuckle bush that had elevated to tree status. It was huge and it had numerous branches that I could sit on and I'd climb to the as high up as I could climb in that and just sit there for hours with the honeybees and enjoy my time outdoors. You know, I grew up as a child doing doing things outdoors all the time. You know, back in the 60s, that's what kids did. You know, grandma didn't want me underfoot, I'm sure, all of the time. So grandpa would go outdoors with me and sit under the birch tree and watch me play. Or he'd, he'd, at the age of nine or eight, I was painting the outbuildings and he'd show me how to paint. I was up on a ladder at the age of eight you know, painting buildings, but outdoors constantly. I used to write poetry as a teenager, and I'd sit outside in the backyard on a, a big rock that was basically a tombstone from some of my grandma's dogs that she had raised. Uh, she used to raise Cocker Spaniels back in the, I don't know, 1930s or 40s, way before I came along. I'd sit on that big stone and watch the sun go down after school in the evening and write poetry in the middle of winter. You know, just loved being outdoors. In my 20s, I moved to Chicago, my early 20s. I moved to Chicago when I was 21, 22 years old. And by the time I was 26, I was working for Greenpeace, knocking on doors out in the Chicago suburbs for Greenpeace Great Lakes. And we had a peace garden that we put up near, not far from the lakefront, um, in Newtown, you know up by North Clark, off Clark, you know, Cabrini Green region area of Chicago. There's a bike trail that goes there now, and there's a little water feature, and it was really nice. We had a little rock, rock garden that allowed water to flow over it, you know, when, I, when we first built it back in 1986, I think it was. But uh, it's still there, and I was really surprised that that was still there. Uh, I was an avid recycler all through my 20s, uh, up until today, you know, I'm 64, I still recycle, I've been recycling forever. In the 1990s, I lived in, I'm still living in Chicago in 91, and I moved back to Clay County uh, with my husband and 
uh, daughters. And um, I lived there for a while. We used to go to state parks a lot. We went camping, took my kids camping. And we got divorced and I moved up to, uh, by 19, no, 2001, I moved to South Dakota. Lived in Bloomington for a while, uh, right around 1999, 2000, somewhere in there, for about a year with my two daughter, youngest daughters. And uh, I moved to South Dakota, in the western part of South Dakota by the Black Hills. And I was there for nine years. I was in Chicago eight years. I was in South Dakota nine years. Uh, there, I was introduced to the concept of peak oil. And that opened up a whole new vision for me. Uh, I was also a writer for the Native Sun. I was a member of the Clean Water Alliance. I was a member of uh, uh, social justice groups that um, worked on Native American uh, advocacy. Um, and, and community um, um, decision-making that uh, was very um, interconnected. You know, pe people were more uh, able to discuss what they wanted to talk about at these meetings. It was like a circular format, if you know what I mean, where everyone was equal and everyone had an equal say and uh, participated in uh, decision-making about the Native American issues that were um, problematic in Rapid City. And there were quite a few. Uh, water was an issue, a big issue. Racism was a big issue. And we dealt with that uh, at, this, at these meetings. Uh, the Clean Water Alliance, I'm still active in that to a certain extent, not, you know, from a distance. Uh, mostly I just keep up with it. I follow them on Facebook. I get their emails. I'm still friends with some of the people who I was close to when I was a member and, and more active as an advocate. But they uh, were and are active in preventing mining companies from being aggressive, aggressively trying to take Native American lands and get permits to, to mine on these lands. And this is an ongoing thing. This is a, a thing that's systemic throughout the United States where you have oil and gas companies um, seeking permits and, and other mining companies, gold, copper, you name it, uh, lithium, um, all kinds of different, different toxic <laughs> substances going to places that are poor, impoverished, or, or reservation lands, or trust lands that aren't on the reservation, but are considered trust lands for Native Americans. And getting these companies are getting permits to mine and excavate and extract minerals, completely destroying whatever's in their path. And nine times out of 10, they do not go back and recap those uranium holes. They do not go back and reclaim the mines that they, you know, where they've devastated the environment. At this time in South Dakota, I also listened to a presentation by a professor at the uh, South Dakota State University in Spearfish. 
SDU, SDSU, something like that. Anyway, I forgot, but <clears throat> since Spearfish, South Dakota. And he came to Rapid City to the library and gave a presentation about peak oil and about um, the transition away from fossil fuel use. And that's when I first heard the word sustainability. It wasn't until years later, um, 2000, okay, 2004, I started back to college, uh, the School of Mines and Technology, <laughs> oddly enough, ironically, uh, started doing some basic pre-engineering courses and uh, mechanical engineering courses. I finished my, my bachelor's degree, however, at uh, Oglala Lakota College, transferred all my credits, was totally disillusioned by <laughs> life for a while, transferred all my credits to Oglala Lakota College, finished my bachelor's degree there, then I did my master's degree, started it in South Dakota in 2010 at um, as, uh, let's see, USD, University of South Dakota, which was in another town on the other side of South Dakota, on the east side of South Dakota, Vermilion, in um, administration. I had been a bookkeeper for four years for my bread and butter. And so I was able to get a Master of Science um, grant or loan to go to school there. And I was accepted, and it was great. You know, I finished, came back to Indiana, moved back here in 2011, and finished my master's degree by 2014, you know, something like that. Then I moved to Arizona and started a PhD in sustainability education. Um, I'd done my master's capstone in uh, recidivism and in, uh, for Native, Native American um, um, students, or not, I'm sorry, not recidivism. That was, that was something else I did in South Dakota, <laughs> had to do with peace and justice, but retention, student retention of Native American students in the public school system in South Dakota. That was what I did my capstone on. And that's when I was, I started to really de dig deep into what the meaning of sustainability is. I want to talk about that because when I went to Arizona to Prescott College, I was really um, not just introduced to sustainability. I was immersed in it. It was amazing. The school there was a LEED certified uh, school. They had, they had uh, solar panels across the building, uh, the main, main library, two dozen solar, huge solar panels on that building that powered that building and uh, other buildings on the campus. I was able to live on campus and work there as a work-study job and go to school there my first year as a PhD student. I learned a remarkable amount of stuff when I was there about sustainability. And the, the main thing that I learned is that how little people know about what sustainability really is and what makes an organization sustainable, what makes a decision sustainable, what makes any human activity sustainable. There's three main things. And briefly, if I could discuss that, would you be interested in hearing? Okay. Certainly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a buzzword that is becoming kind of hollow of meaning 
anymore. Um, but yeah, it's clearly about how are we able to keep things going and, and not hit these endpoints and dead ends. Thank you. Um, you said it, it's a hollow buzzword now, and I think a lot of that is as a result of a misunderstanding of what it really means and the the bipartisan um, banter back and forth with with different phrases and words and and how that can um, destroy uh, the ability to incorporate sustainability into our decision-making processes. Um, first of all, you, to be sustainable, you have to have three basic aspects uh, in, your, in your process. You have to consider the ecology, echoes, it's a Greek word meaning home, you know, the ecology, the place where you live, uh, what is around you, your environment, uh, your ecosystem, where you are, you know. You also have to consider uh, the economy, another part of ECOS. Uh, how do you survive? How do you make your living? Uh, what is your sustenance? How do you uh, manage to, you know, pay your rent, how do you know, or buy your home or plant your crops. Um, then you have to consider the third part of sustainability is the social aspect, the cultural aspect. And those three, those three things overlap and intertwine. Without one, you don't have a sustainable system. Yeah, one thing I've I've said before is that the economy is a subset of the ecosystem. That if you don't have the ecosystem services, as they're now kind of called, of you know, you're getting exact, you know, real services like if you if you were having to buy it, you know, from some company, you'd be getting these ecosystem services. But if you don't have that baseline function then your economic system can't function because it is just an aspect of that. And so real, real systems, real commodities of clean water, clean air, if you don't have your health, then you don't have anything else. Exactly. Yes. Um, to, to be a functional society, uh, we, we have to have... Uh, economic justice, we have to have ecological justice, and the word justice is where the social aspects come in. Uh, you know, I did a lot of writing recently uh, for Village Earth about Native American uh, land issues uh, for their sub-article, sub sub-organization, uh, sub I think. It's not really an or organization, it's a website. Uh, and database called Native Land Information Systems. And uh, the great late David Bertocci was uh, the, the head of that, he founded that. Um, Od Chesney, Ode Chesney uh, from France was also uh, very active on the reservations out west, 
particularly Pine Ridge in South Dakota and some others. And those were the two that hired me as a freelancer to uh, welcomed me into kind of into the fold so that I could write for their blog. But the things that I wrote about were um, issues that where that overlap is between uh, land and culture and environment and the, the ability to sustain oneself, so economy as well. Uh, food, I wrote about food sovereignty, I wrote about education, I wrote about um, land-grant universities, um, I, you know, and there, there's so much interconnection between those three aspects of sustainability. Um, it, it's what biodiversity is uh, all about, you know, really. In, a, in an environment, in an ecosystem, you have for instance, biodiversity. You have to have the keystone species, uh, which without that, the, the entire ecosystem would, would just crumble, you know, and disintegrate. It would, wouldn't be as viable without those keystone species. That might be an earthworm, it might be a wolf, you know. You've got to have a little bit of everything. And that also kind of applies within the microcosm of our own bodies is that the microbiome is producing neurotransmitters is our front of our, our, our immune system. And, you know, if there's an imbalance of one species, that's when you start getting into disease problems. And so the key is to create a diversity so that some species are keeping other species in check and so, you know, a lot of these things we think of in the external world and a lot of people are divorced from the natural world beyond the bounds of the city and everything. But one way to think about it is that our own bodies are a microcosm of the planet and we are a planet. and We have, you know, billions and billions, <laughs> Carl Sagan would say, uh, of constituents, really. And they are running our, what we want and what we crave depends on what bugs we've got in our gut. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was thinking about um, you know, something similar to that. Um, you know, the only way we can thrive is if we have the proper foods, the proper, you know, um, air, we have to have clean water, we have to have, you know, th those are human rights. And the United Nations has a list of human rights, uh, a list of indigenous people's rights. And, and I, you know, I had touched upon some of that in some of my writing for the Native Sun, and a little bit with uh, um, Village Earth. But back to sustainability, um, I want to dig a little deeper, you know, into that. As those aspects of, of interconnectivity and biodiversity when when like you said one one thing is off or not or missing like from a person's diet uh, it, it can throw off the immune system it can throw off uh, uh, throw off their whole uh, you know um, way of functioning you know they can go. You can go from a, being a functional human being to a dysfunctional human being just by not having the proper foods. 
And that's where um, food sovereignty comes into play. Uh, there's another overlap between social justice and uh, agricultural uh, environmental justice. And the, way, I, the reason I say agriculture and environmental justice is because those, those have to be together. Uh, in Minnesota right now, they have passed laws uh, that require farmers to have uh, easement, uh, na natural easement, around their, um, their farms so that the runoff doesn't go directly into waterways. The runoff from farms, uh, agricultural chemicals, doesn't go directly into the waterways, but is filtered through a, a large swath of uh, grasses and, and other uh, plants that can absorb nitrates and absorb different uh, toxic, uh, toxic chemicals and keep them out of, you know, filter those so that they don't run directly into the water supply. They're filtered first. Uh, this, this is uh, similar to what I'm doing on my land right now. Uh, I don't have toxic chemicals on my land that I put on there, but there's runoff from up the hill, I know, where, where neighbors spray and uh, it rains and then it comes down my hill and I've had to divert um, water and slow the process of erosion and slow the, the process of water running um, straight into the, the creek down the hill for me by creating terraces and berms and uh, swales and, and just slowing that water movement process down. That's, that's been my biggest focus for the last 10 years. And that, in turn, has helped species to thrive on the land that are native species that I'm studying and promoting, you know, the growth of, you know, and planting. If, if they don't already exist, I have replaced some plants or tried to grow some plants that weren't there already that are native to this area, that particular type of landscape which is a mesic upland, uh, part, part dry, part wet, uh, higher, higher elevation, ridge, what we call out here a ridge. I'm a ridge runner. You know? <laughs> I'm, on a, I'm on a flat ridge. I have a, a very steep northern slope that goes into a draw that go, feeds into a creek. I have a steep southern slope that uh, goes directly to a road. The runoff on that road goes directly into the creek. I've got to kind of, I'm in the middle. I kind of watch things and um, I believe mitigate erosion and runoff as much as I can, just from my own property lines, you know. And I believe there was Obama era rules. I guess it was the EPA. They were regulating small bodies of water and that that's been rolled back now. Um, to not not kind of every little creek and uh, you know they were complaining about if you got a ditch you come under this jurisdiction and so they've rolled a lot of that back I mean there's a dead zone at the end of the Mississippi River you know from all the agricultural runoff and it's just like here's our delta of death you know that is the consequence of how we're growing our, our food and then, you know, the, these chemicals 
are it, everyone has chemicals in their bloodstream in their in the breast milk plastics. <laughs> even plastics in their stomach and and in the blood they're finding plastics in every uh, aquatic animal you know and and uh, ocean you know mammal mammals and it, it's just it's horrific what we're doing to our planet this is it's not sustainable there's no way we can keep going the way we're going something's got to give and the problem is the thing that's giving is species that's why we have so many species now that are gone that are extinct well and there's supposedly a uh, sixth mass extinction going on you know, determined from looking through the fossil record of these various periods where there were mass die-offs. And apparently a lot of insects are going down. A lot of people remark that when they drive out in certain places, their windshield used to be full of bugs that they hit, and now now they got a clean windshield. I was talking to a lady friend of mine who lives in South Dakota still, and when I was writing, I was writing an article about farms um, and farming on the Pine Ridge Reservation and Standing Rock Reservation, agricultural projects going on there that are, org are organic and use native species and um, contribute to food sovereignty on the reservations. And the lady that I spoke with used to have a farm in North Dakota. She's not native. Um, but her story was interesting because she mentioned that. That was one of the things that she, she brought up, is that it used to be you'd drive down the road at certain times of year and the bugs would be so thick on your windshield. You know, you'd have to use the windshield wipers to, to get them off so you could see to drive. And now that's not the case. And I know this is, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, weather patterns change all the time. But no, this is because of global warming. This is because of uh, pesticides. This is because of lots of different things that we're doing to our own environment to eradicate the, the human race. That, that's what we're doing. We're eradicating our own human race by our own activities, our own human activities. I wish more people would understand that this is not, <laughs> it's not a joke, you know? It's not a partisan thing. It's not a, uh, Republican or Democrat argument. This is this is a actual need to keep humanity alive, to keep our environment uh, viable, so that we can live in it. And this is something that was written about back in the 1960s and the early 70s by by several different. Uh, environmentalists, um, ecologists, biologists, people who were studying plant life and, and animal life and weather patterns and, and things way back then. And now we're seeing it happen. You know, it was prophetic because we're, we're seeing the results of it. Uh, this mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction you're talking about that's happening now, you know, we can see it in the number of birds, the bird populations. Uh, Audubon Society publishes this information 
all the time. I get, you know, I get an email every other day from the Audubon Society or Sierra Club talking about which species needs protection because, you know, we're losing our protections. And we need to, you know, drive it home somehow that what needs to happen is saving our planet from ourselves. I don't mean to get... <laughs> I'm not on a soapbox here, believe me, I don't want to be. But this is a fact. We need to just wake up and, uh, you know, you can call it woke, you can call it what you want, but we need to actually wake up and realize that this isn't a game. We're not playing a game. This is our survival we're talking about. And as a human being, I want to survive. Hey, you know, I've got cats. They depend on me. I gotta feed them. I gotta be alive for them. <laughs> and and you've got some and you've got some offspring, some future generations in the world. God bless. Yeah, you know, I've got four grandsons, I've got three granddaughters, I've got one granddaughter on the way and a great granddaughter that just was born. You know, I have four daughters. I had five. I had, one passed away in oh eight, but I have four daughters, and I want to see the planet preserve my family. I, I do, you know. I don't think that's a selfish thing to want. I'd like to see my family live. I'd like to see your family live. I'd like to see everyone survive, be able to survive this mess that we've created, and we have. We don't need to be taking a, a step backwards when it comes to civil rights. We don't need to be taking a step backwards when it comes to basic human rights. That means basic human needs. You know, the right to clean water, the right to clean air, the right to uh, a job, a way to make a living. Um, those are basic human needs. And our infrastructure should really be based upon those basic human needs and the needs of our environment because that's what sustains us. When we start supporting uh, industries that don't support our environment and work against it and are destroying it, we're working against our own best interest here, you know? And we're allowing this to happen, and it's systemic. It is global, and it's systemic. It's something we really need to pay attention to and reverse, because it's going to get out of hand if we don't. We need to take it back. We need to get a hold of the reins and rein that stuff in. When people uh, understand a certain amount of progress, you know, life expectancy, and things that got better as a result of industrialization, and really partly due to secularization that ended a lot of kind of conflict between groups and just allowed people to just be, and they weren't so invested in who's right about this or that, you know, kind of way to be. And that has created this situation of relative peace and prosperity, and people can believe in that. They hear all the doom and gloom. They don't know what to do with that. They just want to shove it away. Um, and I think what needs to happen more, besides, you know, fighting the pretty much evil systems that are destroying things for short-term greed and all that, 
is to demonstrate that there's another way that, you know, we've, we've sold everything out. We've farmed the job out. We don't want to be subsistence farmers anymore because that was a daily drudgery. And it was, there was a reason that people got a washing machine and, you know, wanted out from being constantly on chores, but they've also given up everything to these industries who is, you know, they're going to produce so many pounds of something and put it in a box for you to eat. And they don't care that much about what's in there as long as it's got enough ounces and and you buy it and consume it. And they make it addictive. You know, they even design the molecules to be addictive so you'll buy more. They make things planned obsolescence to break so you'll buy another one. And so it's about creating all these middlemen, you know, so there's all these skim points between you and your need. To whereas if every building, like there's grocery stores that have urban farms on top of them. Oh, what sense does that make when food doesn't have to travel 1,500 miles to your plate? If it, could, if it could be your own house or at least in your neighborhood or on the library or, you know, these various municipal structures that are, you know, kind of collective things that we've all invested in. Then we know where it's been grown. It, you know, we know what chemicals are in it. We don't have to trust. And, oh, a massive recall because one thing got into the, the stream here and it's everywhere. And so we're calling back millions and, oh, too bad if you didn't get the memo. That just reminded me of, uh, uh, what you're talking about there reminded me of back in South Dakota, that presentation I was telling you about, um, the guy was talking about peak oil and our reliance on fossil fuels. He also had a book that he was passing around called The Transition Timeline. It was a transition from fossil fuels to a more localized economy. And and that meant, you know, growing, growing foods nearby, having farmers markets, uh, using more bicycles, walking. Oh my God, that's a concept, right? Walking places instead of taking a car everywhere you go. Um, uh, taking a small scooter, uh, carpooling. If if you have to take a car, at least you know go with another person. You know, don't just go by yourself. That way you're using half the amount of energy. You're using half the amount. Uh, you're, you're polluting half the amount. You know of air or destroying, you know, spewing half the amount of carbon into the air that you normally would if it was two people driving to the same location, you know. So, you know, when I, I live in Spencer, and I, occasionally I want to shop at Kroger in Bloomington. I got a friend who we will ride together. I said, call him up, say, hey, you want to go to, to Kroger? You know, they got wine on sale, <laughs> so, you know, whatever. We'll just go together instead of, just me going by myself. Uh, there are times I come to town by myself because I, you know, I have, like now, having a meeting and, you know, that person would not be interested in that. But what I'm saying is reduce. It's not just about recycling. It's a reduce, reuse, recycle. And that was another thing that little town did, that transition town. It was called Totnes in England, um, or in the UK, somewhere in the UK, Totnes, T-O-T-N-E-S. Uh, Totnes Town, that's what it was known as, and it was kind of, a, it wasn't a utopia, not by any means, because it was hard work, you know. People had to change. They had to force themselves to do things differently. 
um, but they saw the value of it. And because they were able to visualize the value of it and, and visualize what it would mean for them in the long run in the future and mean for other people around them, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to make it work and willing to you know, work a little harder to, to make the changes that they needed to make in their daily lives. And you know, eventually you get used to that. I've been, I was off the grid for four years when I first moved into my house. No electricity, no running water. I still don't have running water. I cart my water in, I collect rainwater, I have my own reverse osmosis machine, and I produce my own drink, drinking water that way. Um, I treat my own water, I test my own water, I have test kits. It's not impossible to do, you know? I don't use a lot of water. I know exactly how much water it takes to wash my hair. I know exactly how much water I need to bathe. I know exactly how much water I need to wash my dishes. And believe me, that's a heck of a lot less than you use when you have a sink and running water in your house because you just don't pay attention. You don't have to haul it. You don't have to work for it. You don't think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. But if, when, it, when it's in your face and every day you're dealing with it, number one, you're more aware. Number two, it gets easier. As time goes on, you don't think about it. You just do it. And you are glad to do it because you know what it's doing for your environment. You know it's saving water. If I was in Arizona living like I'm living right now, people would be like oh, singing my praises. Yay! We, more, more of us should be doing that, but because this is a place where we get rain a lot, people don't think about it. When I, when I lived in South Dakota, there was a dry, dry spell, and there was also a, a time when Rapid Creek flooded. When Rapid Creek flooded, um, was full one year, I remember the Army Corps of Engineers, came, or no, it was the National Guard, they came out with this huge reverse osmosis machine thing, you know, on wheels. It was like a small box on, on, on a car <laughs> they pulled it up to the, the creek and they stuck a hose down in there and they sucked a bunch of water out and they ran it through this uh, industrialized re reverse osmosis machine to take to troops overseas i thought you know what come on you know we've got people who, who don't have enough drinking water in in phoenix or or in california <laughs> because the rivers are going dry. But we've got all this water here, we got floods, we've got rain constantly. Oh my gosh, you know, we've got more rain than we need. We could be taking water to some of these places. It would cost some money, you know, to do that. And then you've got the transportation of it too, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And I'm saying, if people needed to survive, there's there's devices that can pull it out of the air. Yeah. It's just from humidity. Yeah. And from and we've actually been in somewhat of a drought in Indiana recently. And but it was just a couple of years ago that the downtown flooded the flood of 21 in Bloomington. And uh, what I call the first casualty of climate change that we've had that's clear is a guy that drowned when his vehicle was washed into Switchyard Park. 
two guys were in the car. It flooded enough. His car went down, you know, Jordan Creek, Switchyard Park. But it was before it was put in as a park. You know, and a lot of that was just due to clogged gutters everywhere, not maintained. I've been in a neighborhood up in Muncie. Water's kept rising, water's kept rising. Oh no, it's up to the level and it's getting in the car. Well, crap, we can't just look at it anymore. I went out there, knew where the drain was, started feeling for the stuff and pulling up the sticks and the leaves and the stuff. And that whole neighborhood drained in like 10 minutes. And so that was the difference between flood damage. Mitigation. Yeah, and, and just, and all that is, is everybody looks at that gutter and they see the leaves and the crap building up, and, but it ain't my job. And it, it's supposedly here, the property owner is supposed to take care of that kind of thing. But when they're renters, the property owner isn't there to see or notice. And just all these things are the tedious. That's, that's the stuff you used to have the teenager do yeah. as the chores. And that's part of infrastructure too, you know? I mean, we've got this huge infrastructure bill right now. Money going out for this, money going out for that. But we need to maintain things that are sustainable. That's what we need to be doing. Maintaining those things that are sustainable already. We've got a huge thing going on all across the United States. Sustainable cities. People get awards for having the most sustainable city. Uh, you can apply for grants for sustainability for your city. Use that money, people. I mean, my God, use that money for solar panels, for maintaining uh, drainage systems, for for keeping uh, debris out of creeks, garbage out of creeks. You know, it's clogging up the runoff. You know, so it can run into the, uh, the main river where it's supposed to be going. Use it to clean up stuff. Use that money to give people jobs, to put people to work, to, to do things that are going to benefit the entire society. There's all these jobs that are created that are just kinds of busy work that aren't really essential to, you know, the whole system. And meanwhile, all of these certain tasks are neglected because... How are we going to profit out of making that into a job when it should just be a job? I mean, you had this with like the Civilian Conservation Corps that Roosevelt created in the Depression. Like these people need some jobs. We're going to build some trails up into the, the you know, the, the lands that we're preserving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if industry doesn't do it, the government has to do it. If you don't want the government to do it, well, do it, industry. You know, and you get into these dichotomies, you know, oh, it's all a hoax or, oh, these 15-minute cities, it's just a means of oppression. You'll own nothing and like it. And there is a whole corrupt, uh, you know, cadre, cabal, on top of these international things that doesn't have the best interests. But see, there was a point which everybody said, these sustainability things, these environmental things, aren't feasible. You have to find a way to make it profitable. You have to find a way. Well, industry finally figured out how to make these things profitable. And guess what? They're squeezing this on all of it. Instead of kicking it in in a way that we're sustained. And it's all about creating these excesses. You're talking about greenwashing. No. 
Yeah, well, yeah, th that's the thing. They're, they're, they're doing things supposedly in the name of the environment, but they're really just capturing market share and not really building that local resilience, that self-sufficiency, because that's anathema to a system where we got to have everything running through our pipe so we can get a piece of it. If you don't have to buy this and or that, and, you know, if you're generating electricity at your local spot, you know, you could have everybody that walks in a door at the grocery store spin this wheel like this prayer wheel, like they have the Tibetan prayer wheels. Even if that's just a watt or two, everybody, all the hundreds of people going in and out, they have places where the floor going up and down, like a disco and dance floors and stuff, that can generate electricity up and down. You can get anything spinning like that. There's all this ambient energy going around. Something like a merry-go-round that kids are playing on Church could be a generator. A revolving door. Yeah. You know, so many different little ways like that where you can generate electricity. Think of think of New York City or Chicago, a, a federal building. How many times that revolving door goes around in an hour, <laughs> in, an, in a minute? How many people go in and out of that same revolving door every minute? of every day, Monday through Friday, you could probably run every, every light in the office building. <laughs> you know? It's not a huge office, it's not real Yeah, high. even, even if it's just this or that small thing, that adds up across a system of something you don't need to generate somewhere else. Like you using your water the way you are, that water has to be pumped with electricity, too. You're not just saving water, you're saving electricity. And it's not like we don't have the technology. I mean, I, when I was going to the School of Mines, I I was a member of a camp team, a Center for Advanced Materials Processing team, you know, and we had like a little, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Not tests, what am I thinking of? Um, competitions with other schools and, and groups of schools uh, in robotics and other things. Well, one of the camp teams was a, a concrete canoe, okay? Another one was a hydrogen car. And this was back in 2007, no, before that, 2005, they had a hydrogen car project. And they were trying to make it feasible at the School of Mines in South Dakota in 2006 and five, you know? Um, I was doing work with unmanned aerial vehicles. You know what you could do with, you could do a lot of more positive things with an unmanned aerial vehicle than what they're doing right now. What they're doing right now is they weaponized it. That's why I got disillusioned. I could see it, I, I saw what was happening. It was going in that direction. Department of Defense was interested. I was like, okay, great, that's fine. You know, have at it. But <laughs> if that's all you're gonna do with it, with that technology, you know, get real. Do something positive with that too. Don't hog it all for war. Don't hog it all for, for destruction. Use it for something actually good, you know, where you're actually gonna do something that's benefiting society and not destroying something. Well, the thing is now with the way they're doing the transition is, is, uh, you know, the idea that you're going to tax the carbon and stuff, and okay, that you feel the pinch of that, and that enforces a certain frugality, but that's going to be another major reason that people are going to reject this stuff. People are already squeezed, we've already got all this inflation, and if you make everything more expensive because you're charging for the fossil fuels and stuff, but the renewables have come down, 
to where they're finally cheaper. They used to say, oh, this stuff isn't feasible. Oh, it's 20 years off. And then another 20 years and another 20 years. Well, now the renewables are less per watt than the standard system of things. And what you have right now is the last throws, death throes of the dinosaur of the big system. And so Joe Biden has pumped more oil now than Trump. He's broken all the records. So all of these greenhouse gas reductions with the Inflation Reduction Act have, are twice over negated by all the oil leases and, and flowing. It's not like we're ever going to entirely, truly, totally get rid of the oil. There's going to be certain essential systems, and you do sometimes have to, you know, you're not going to abolish the military. You're going to need to run big machines and things. But that's what it should be reserved for, not making plastic doohickeys for the dollar store. Exactly. Yeah. Not, not producing more oil so that you have the more plastics so that we have, you know, can do more fracking. <laughs> no. Um, you know, if you're, you're going to use a, an unmanned aerial vehicle for something, use it to sweep for mines in some of these minefields that, that have been left behind by all these endless wars everywhere across the freaking planet. You know, you've got, you've got the technology. We have so much great technology. <laughs> we've got to start learning how to channel it better. Uh, <laughs> we've got to grow a conscience. That's what we've got to do. You know? Not wait for somebody else to do it. Uh, right now, I'm working on a, a couple of wind towers at my house. I've got one, uh, a two vertical helix wind towers, and I'm trying to figure out a way to maximize how much energy they'll produce. I haven't done that yet. I got sidetracked with a, a remodeling project on this on my house, but um, next spring, when it warms up a little bit, I'm going to get back outside. I've got most of the materials I need, but there might be some other equipment I need to get to, to work on that maximization part. And I've been getting online with uh, some electrical engineers and, and uh, electricians on Quora, Quora.com. This is a, you know, a online question. You can ask people questions on it. I'm trying to use Quora in a, in a positive way to um, to build up my own knowledge uh, of, of, of electric electric electricity and and uh, how to build alternative means of energy for my own property you know in Owen County right now if you put up a wind tower or you put up a, a solar panel you get a tax break on your property taxes I don't know what it's like in Monroe County but this can't be isolated to Owen County I'm sure it's something that is a thing all over the country that if you put up alternative energy on your property that you own you'd get a tax break and why not you know it makes sense right and it's something any landlord can do. It's something any building owner, any business owner can do that has, a, has their own building. There's no reason why you can't invest in something like that. It's called investing in something that is good. You know, forget the stock market. I mean, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> don't do that. But 
I don't want to see that fail. I want to see it, you know, thrive. But I'd like to see those stocks be for green stocks. I'd like to see more green investments, you know. There's a few and far between. And the ones that advertise as green really are. They're greenwashing. Oh, yeah, they got that going on, but they're not really green and they're not sustainable. You've, you've got to really pick and choose and decipher what is and what isn't a sustainable thing to invest in. It's better to just, that's why I'm just investing in my own place right now. I want to show other people it can be done, like you were saying uh, earlier when we were talking off, off uh, the record. Um, be the example. That's why I'm homesteading. That's why I'm homesteading in my county, in Owen County, where I'm from, where my father's family is from, you know, the, the Beam family. <laughs> uh, Beam House on the Hill. That was my great-great-grandfather that built that. I came back there because, one, I love the trees. I miss my trees out in South Dakota, where it's, you know, a lot of bad lands, a lot of, you know, small trees, except for the cottonwood. that blows cottonwood everywhere. <laughs> But I miss my maple trees. I miss my beautiful, huge, pretty poplar trees, of, you know, tulip poplars and, and oak trees that are towering, you know. Uh, not, not the scrub oak, what they call scrub oak and gamble oak in, South, in uh, Arizona. They're little, you know, they're little bitty trees. They're great, they're wonderful to have. I mean, in a dry climate, my gosh, you know, you get under the trees, it's cooler, it's nice, and you've got water sheds there too, you know. But here, this is home. Grow where you're planted. I always heard that, you know. That meant something to me. Grow where you're planted. It's like, mm, wherever, you, wherever I am, I want to be able to grow. But this is where I was born, you know. This is the area I came from. This is where my family's from. And I kind of want to give back something to that area, you know. Maybe that's a pipe dream. I don't know. But it feels right. It feels like the right thing to do now. And, and so I'm exploring uh, different ways of homesteading in a more uh, viable way, scientifically, technologically viable, um, you know, energy-wise, uh, ecologically viable, you know, environmentally. I'm studying the native plants, trying to propagate native plant species and promote their growth and, and, and soil uh, mitigation, you know, uh, or not uh, soil mitigation, so, soil growth, soil health, erosion mitigation, and, and to preserve what's there and regenerate what isn't that used to be or could be. There, there's a lot of farms out in Owen County and Clay County. Uh, a lot of people use pesticides and herbicides, you know, growth inhibitors that are just killing off our pollinators and causing cancer. You know how many farmers? Uh, last summer I was working on a farm and a farmer there doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, goes to church, doesn't cuss, you know, he's got throat cancer. You know why? He's breathing those fumes. I, I was working on the property doing some construction work with a friend and um, every time I'd go up to the barn where he keeps the chemicals that he sprays on the crops, I couldn't breathe. 
the toxicity was so strong. I could, you know, acidic, nasty, acrid smell. I, you know, I thought, man, he's breathing that every day, every season, every year, you know, I said, every summer. And he's surrounded by outdoors, spraying it on his crops. It's no wonder, no wonder he's sick. I felt so horrible, you know. These are people that depend on that, that living to survive. And the government's telling them to do it this way. And, you know, these big companies are telling them to do it that way. and. And, you know, you got your farm bureaus and your co-ops and your, uh, even, even your little 4-H groups all banking on this to work for them. And because the government's telling them this is the way to do it. These ag companies are telling them this is the right way. And this has been going on for decades. They're using Agent Orange to kill people. I mean, you know, it's sad. It really is. And we've got to we've got to backtrack. We've got to erase that, <laughs> delete, <laughs> start over. <laughs> well, and that's a that's a good way. I think a good term to wrap it up on. <laughs> that uh, you know you have to acknowledge these stark realities, and then create these positive solutions. <laughs>